Hi everyone, Andrew here. For this episode, I have a fantastic educator visiting. Dr. Melissa Robinson is a star faculty at the University of Washington in the electrophysiology section. She focuses on complex ablations. She is the go-to person for complicated patients and does a lot of the ventricular tachycardia ablations. She is well known among her colleagues for being meticulous, methodical, and very attentive to her patients. I spoke with her about ventricular tachycardia over three cases that demonstrate the heterogeneity of this arrhythmia. I learned a lot preparing and discussing these cases, and I think you will too. With that, let's get started. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Thank you for meeting with me today, Dr. Robinson. May I have you give your name and your title for our audience so they can get to know you? Sure. I'm Melissa Robinson, and I'm an associate clinical professor at the University of Washington. I'm the medical director of the electrophysiology lab, but what I'm uh, most passionate about is I'm the director of the complex ablation program, which encompasses ventricular arrhythmias and arrhythmias in adult congenital heart disease. Perfect. Thank you. And leaning off utilizing your expertise. I've prepared some cases to discuss ventricular tachycardia, and we'll be focusing our discussion on the uh, more of the chronic management of ventricular tachycardia since the acute management of ventricular tachycardia is as well outlined within, you know, ACLS algorithms. So we'll just, so we'll just launch right ahead and go with our first case. Um, we are seeing a 48-year-old man uh, who's obese with diabetes, and during his lunch hour at work out at a restaurant, he has uh, a cardiac arrest. Um, EMS is quick to arrive to the scene, and they find the patient in polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, and he's treated with successful defibrillation. Their post-cardioversion uh, EKG demonstrates an anterior STEMI, and he's taken to the closest cath lab where he's found to have an acute occlusion of the proximal left anterior descending artery and undergoes a successful uh, PCI to that artery. Uh, because of the out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, uh, he was initially cooled because there was no initial neurological recovery, um, but eventually regains neurological function and is recovering well in the hospital. We were seeing him at the time, you know, a few days after that initial event, and on his telemetry, we're seeing some runs of some shorter runs of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia that have been more present you know, closer to the time of the event, but have been decreasing in frequency throughout his hospital stay. So as we're thinking about this patient, the question often comes up about whether this patient needs or would benefit from an implantable cardiodefibrillator or an ICD. And what are your thoughts about that? These are dramatic events in patients' lives. This was a public arrest. And so this often gets folks thinking that they really need dramatic therapy above and beyond the stent. But there's actually quite a bit of data because cardiac arrest due to acute myocardial infarctions are not all that rare, frankly. And so we've been able to study this group. There's a lot of data from randomized trials that support um, just revascularization and goal-directed medical therapy for this particular patient. So one thing that's interesting is you've left out the ejection fraction in the stem of this, um, of this uh, case, 
And I think there's a point to that. It actually doesn't matter what the ejection fraction is in terms of our, our current guidelines. So even if the ejection fraction is low in this instance, he's had an acute myocardial infarction and the initial therapy is, is simply revascularization. Perfect. Now, does that change at all in terms of patients who are having you know, salvos of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia? Sometimes we see those patients and can get nervous that they're having a lot of ectopy and whether you know, they are at greater risk for having another event, meaning yeah. another event of ventricular tachycardia. Right. So I, I do think that you really put the nail on the head that like we do get nervous. So some of the things we do are, are treating the doctors. We I think this really is a role for an electrophysiologist to help out the CCU team, the cardiology team, because there's sort of different flavors of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. So if this patient is having PVCs that are initiating somewhat polymorphic looking ventricular tachycardia, I'd actually be a little bit worried that he's under, uh, under revascularized, that's not a word, but that we haven't had full revascularization and that there's ongoing ischemia. Um, it does matter where the ischemia is. So the Hisperkinji system, the left anterior fascicle, and especially the left posterior fascicle, which seems to get disconnected from its blood supply a little bit easier. The left posterior uh, fascicle um, tends to be really irritable in an ischemic environment. And these areas can trigger off ventricular fibrillation. We don't really know what this patient's presenting arrhythmia technically was. Did he have monomorphic VT that went on for long enough and it degenerated? Did he go straight into polymorphic VT? We don't know. Ischemia-driven arrhythmias tend to be more polymorphic, less, um, um, less regular, less, uh, less uh, dependent on sort of preformed circuits within preformed SCAR and related to heterogeneous uh, conduction, heterogeneous repolarization within a larger mass of ischemic muscle. So they tend to be sort of uglier. If this gentleman's having non-sustained VT, some of these patients will even have non-sustained monomorphic VT coming from the outflow tracts, which is just sort of an adrenaline-driven area um, that we can see even in normal hearts that would make me less worried about this particular patient. So I do think the morphology matters and how you localize it onto the substrate that you're dealing with. Where was the infarction? Okay. And so just to summarize, the having runs of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia in some situations may make you more concerned to perhaps escalate therapies for that patient, but there may be other forms or in the morphology of that non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, the NSVT, really would have a, a large sway in your clinical decision-making for a patient like this, who presumably uh, his VT is purely ischemia-driven. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and frankly, if you look in our guidelines, um, really non-sustained VT is not an indication for ICDs. It's not um, really in any substrate um, outside sort of chronic substrates like the genetic cardiomyopathies and things. It can be one more risk factor. But in an ischemic cardiomyopathy patient, post-MI patient, non-sustained VT doesn't actually come into the algorithm. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Let's fast forward this same patient about 18 months later and 
so he he had a revascularized LAD STEMI, and now at home he has a VT arrest at home. So again, nine one one's called, EMS arrives, and this time their strip demonstrates a monomorphic ventricular tachycardia, um, and he gets successful defibrillation. He's brought to the hospital. His the post-myocardial infarction ejection fraction was around 45%. And currently at home, his medications relevant to this discussion, I think, are a statin, metoprolol, aspirin, and clopidogrel. When he's admitted, he has some mild troponin elevation, but not like a dramatic rise and fall that we're concerned about having an acute coronary event. But he's still taken to, the, to angiography and demonstrates a patent stent in the LAD and with stable non-obstructive coronary disease in the right coronary artery and in the circumflex. So now think about this patient later on, you know, in a situation where we're thinking not so much ischemia driven, but in the initial event, you know, 18 months ago was all from ischemia. Does this patient, is this a patient who now would benefit from an ICD and maybe what's changed if so? So I think this is really an interesting scenario. So number one, you have a patient who's uh, had a myocardial infarction and has chronic LV dysfunction, um, but it's relatively mild. So by all of our current criteria, he did not meet indications chronically for a primary prevention uh, ICD. His ejection fraction was 45% and you didn't say it, but we're assuming that he wasn't um, having heart failure symptoms. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't get an ICD, but then he still is a patient who presents with sustained uh, VT and has a cardiac arrest. So now this patient meets secondary prevention criteria. This did not happen within the setting of a new myocardial infarction. And this happened in the setting of presumably some healed scar. So that substrate's not going away. Even if they'd gone in there and done a little balloon angioplasty of some instant restenosis, this is monomorphic VT that lives within sort of chronic remodeled scar. They tend to present years after the initial event, but can present as soon as even three months after a larger myocardial infarction where we've had a lot of um, injured muscle. And you know that even though he was revascularized, he clearly created some scars. Ejection fraction is abnormal. And I, as an electrophysiologist, I like to go sort of one step further. His EF is 45%, but does he have a focal wall motion abnormality? Is this consistent with the territory we're looking at? Does he have an anterior or anterior septal wall motion abnormality? Because then it all fits. That's the area that didn't get enough blood. That's the area that created scar. And that's where we probably had um, uh, some reentry within the scar. So uh, electrical circuits are spinning around within those corridors in the, in the scar and creating monomorphic VT. So he definitely needs an ICD. It's not enough to put this man on antiarrhythmics. That's been shown very clearly in secondary prevention trials that are honestly older than perhaps many of the listeners to this podcast. Um, and the question really is, should he get an antiarrhythmic along with his ICD? And that's um, a little bit dealer's choice at this point. Some people would even say he potentially could come to the electrophysiology lab and get a catheter ablation. We have very few randomized trials of catheter ablation in ventricular tachycardia patients. And one of them is a trial called SMASH-VT that was done about a decade ago. 
Um, Vivek Reddy is the senior author on that. Um, and a lot of the cases were done in Europe and Prague, um, but they took patients just like this who met indications for an ICD in the setting of ischemic cardiomyopathy and had had monomorphic ventricular tachycardia and they randomized them to defibrillator versus defibrillator and ablation. And the folks who got sort of a prophylactic ablation, if you will, it was their first episode, they had fewer ICD events. We can't seem to show mortality benefit in this population. So I think that we're sort of chipping away and adding therapy, not necessarily life-saving therapy beyond the defibrillator, but we can add to this patient's course by decreasing their overall events. Most patients in clinical practice will get the defibrillator alone. Some of them will get some antiarrhythmic. And the rare patient, it may make sense to go straight for ablation, depending on how much information you have, the 12 lead EKG, et cetera. Mm -hmm. This patient's already on metoprolol. Do you think there would be any benefit to trying to increase that to like a maximally tolerated dose sort of approach, as, as that can be somewhat of an antiarrhythmic in terms of ventricular tachycardia? It definitely can be, but the data is modest. And so much of the data for treating ventricular tachycardia with metoprolol is like 30 years old. And it's really a pre-revascularization era. Um, and and um, certainly uh, we didn't have more modern um, aldosterone inhibitors, ACE inhibitors, all of the uh, fancy drugs we have now for ischemic cardiomyopathy. Um, and they quickly moved into the formal antiarrhythmics, sodalol, amiodarone, um, which have been shown to decrease ICD events and decrease VT events in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. So I don't push the metoprolol dose too hard. I sometimes will see patients that, I just did an ablation this week on a gentleman who's on 100 BID of metoprolol. He's 72 years old. He's dizzy all the time and tired. So I do think that pushing the metoprolol too high really doesn't pan out. That being said, we probably underdose a lot of patients, even if you're looking at the primary heart failure literature. So it's not unreasonable to go up on that dose as a first start. Mm -hmm. So some, maybe like summative comments about this case, because when we see this patient 18 months later after you know another event of ventricular tachycardia, and as you mentioned, this thought or concern that with, with our retrospectoscope, Hmm. say, well, this patient, you know, had another event and have we done this person a disservice um, by not treating them more aggressively, like with a device or possibly antiarrhythmic therapy up front at the time of, uh, of the initial STEMI. But I think as you've um, well discussed that there's, there's really no data for those approaches, at least as of yet. And I don't know if there's other active research in trying to delineate who are these patients who may go on to develop scar and then scar-based ventricular tachycardia versus those who, you know, recover from their MI without, uh, who are then lower risk for, you know, uh, for VT in the future. Yeah, I think these kinds of studies, this is really the sort of promise of big data. So healthcare systems, um, in Europe and, you know, there's a lot of places uh, like the Netherlands and other um, uh, countries that really keep sort of uniform healthcare data. Canada does a pretty good job about this, um, where the healthcare systems aren't as fractionated and they can really keep large population um, databases. And 
get the patient's echoes, get the patient's EKGs. And I really do think that machine learning and you know, taking a deep dive into large data sets is gonna help us with better prediction models. So even 700, 1,000 person studies where we randomize these kinds of patients to therapies, I don't think are gonna pick out the, the patients who will actually benefit. Because a, a 49 year old man who had an anterior wall MI and has an EF of 45% with diabetes and obesity, those can be very heterogeneous patients in terms of arrhythmia risk. Mm -hmm. So it really comes down to substrate and the intermix between the autonomic nervous system and substrate. And it starts to get a little nuanced, frankly, but it, it speaks to how difficult it is to predict these things. And to have guidelines that are currently just essentially based on ejection fraction feels very unsophisticated because it frankly is. Um, and we know that. Um, there's really cool um, uh, MRI and computer-based modeling within SCARS to predict which SCARS are actually um, arrhythmic, um, really neat stuff that I think isn't ready for prime time, uh, wide distribution. It's expensive and it's uh, laborious, but I think that, I hope in the next five to 10 years that we'll be doing more kind of personalized medicine to say, hey, this person's at risk. But certainly within standard of care, nothing was, nothing was amiss on this particular patient. And him presenting with monomorphic BT related to his scar 18 months later is not the same thing as his polymorphic BT at the time of the occluded artery. And, and they don't predict each other. Um, obviously, it wouldn't the monomorphic BT doesn't predict retrospectively, but the polymorphic BT does not predict monomorphic BT. The vast majority of those patients will do fine. And I have a lot of patients in my practice who I saw after these kinds of events as a second opinion, hey, I'm worried I need a defibrillator, or I don't want a defibrillator, and the doc wants to put one in. Um, and they, they do fine for years and years and years. So. Interesting stuff. Okay. Let's move on to our second case here. So now we have a 60-year-old man who has a history of idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy who has a chronic ejection fraction you know, around 30%. Currently doing very well with a New York Heart Association Class 1 symptoms and had a primary prevention ICD placed you know, some years ago because of this reduced ejection fraction. He has syncope at home and received defibrillation from his ICD. He quickly regains consciousness. His wife calls 911 and he's brought to the hospital. A device interrogation demonstrates monomorphic BT that was unsuccessfully treated with antitachycardia pacing and then was successfully defibrillated. His current medications include lisinopril, carvedilol, and spironolactone. The initial labs are notable for a potassium of 3.0 and a magnesium of 1.7. So in first approaching this patient, how do you approach this patient's uh, ventricular tachycardia and how to manage it? Yeah, I think this is a pretty common case actually for us um, who follow folks with ICDs. So the initial management is really a deep dive into the event itself. So making sure that this was a monomorphic VT on the device interrogation, like you said, and seeing how it may have started. So sometimes these are starting because the patient's having frequent PVCs. And if you're seeing that, then you may uh, want to direct therapy at the PVCs, such as antiarrhythmics. Um, and then really looking at the anti-tachycardia pacing, the ATP. So this kind of gets uh, ahead of us here, but um, 
not all ATP is created equal and there's sort of nominal settings on how fast, how much faster the antitachycardia pacing is in relationship to the ventricular tachycardia. So the concept here is there's, there's a circuit in the heart that's running around. Um, and if we can just get slightly ahead of it, we can depolarize the tissue in a way that, um, that makes it refractory when the arrhythmia spins back around and it terminates itself, sort of the dragon catching its tail, so to speak. And so you want to pace ever so slightly faster than the tachycardia. But if you're only a little bit faster, it won't stop it. If you're too fast, it can degenerate it into ventricular fibrillation. And so I always like to look at the shocks, what actually happened, and see if I can modify the antitachycardia pacing. Can I pace a little faster if it, if it didn't work because um, it wasn't fast enough? Can I try a couple more times? So there's a lot of nuance that we can go about. And I do think tailoring it to the patient's individual events is reasonable. There's frankly no data to support that though. This is a hard thing to study. Okay. Yes, I was inter interested in that in particular because I feel like if you're implanting an ICD for primary prevention, you know, you're just kind of picking these ATP settings from, I don't know, probably whatever the default setting is from the manufacturer and leaving it at that, I would guess. Honestly, for the most part, that's fine. Um, so, you know, a reasonable amount of modeling uh, has gone into this. We sort of forget in, when we're on the, the physician um, and uh, practitioner side that there's a lot of scientists really working really hard um, sure. on modeling and thinking about this to help us take care of patients. So their nominals aren't totally random. Um, they really are based on lots of simulations and collated data from thousands of events. So they're totally reasonable. But you can then see how they interacted with the patient's particular substrate. Um, and if every time a patient gets ATP, it accelerates it into ventricular fibrillation, wow, you, you know, you need to change something. Mm -hmm. right? Got it. Yeah. Okay. Before we get into further discussions of management, actually take one step back. So this patient's presenting with ventricular tachycardia with you know, reduced electrolytes with a low potassium and a slightly low magnesium. And I want to get your thoughts and you, you, how you approach patients with electrolyte abnormalities who then have ventricular tachycardia. And when do you consider those electrolyte abnormalities um, to be causative for ventricular tachycardia? No, I think this is a really good point. Um, I do think that electrolytes matter. So I do have... Uh, Several patients who take magnesium in particular, because magnesium will help you hold on to potassium, and it does seem overall to decrease their episodes. But for the most part, these electrolyte abnormalities that you see on presentations self-correct. Um, so they have to do with um, the shock itself with adrenaline surges, and you can actually get a drop in serum electrolytes um, related to the actual event itself in sort of uh, mysterious ways, if you will. Um, unless this person has a reason, like new diuretic therapy, um, some endocrine abnormality where they may be potassium wasting, I think you should assume that they're not running around just randomly with a potassium of three. Um, and you can go back and look at their other labs that were done in other contexts, um, that this probably isn't just provoked with uh, electrolytes. And this doesn't end up being a primary target for us. The overwhelming majority of folks who present with an arrhythmia are going to have normal electrolytes. They happen sort of in the outpatient setting. So 
It's mm-hmm. not a primary target for me. Okay. And then one last question on that is we're talking more classically that electrolyte abnormalities result in polymorphic ventricular tachycardia rather than monomorphic te- uh, VT. Your thoughts on that? True, not true, mostly true, but often exceptions. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that I think that's mostly true, actually. So you're you're if you're truly hypokalemic or hypomagnesemic, um, then you're going to prolong your QT interval. And the real cellular basis of the prolonged QT interval is that you're uh, increasing the dispersion of repolarization. So the muscle cells throughout the myocardium are repolarizing at different times. And that doesn't generally set you up for reentry. It sets reentry is really based on slow conduction. So muscle cell to muscle cell because there's intervening fibrosis or there's a narrow channel. Um, and so the, the, the actual conduction cell to cell is slow, but when you have repolarization that's slow and heterogeneous across the muscle, you get polymorphic ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation. You get wavelet reentry, these really small changing waves. And so that is, that seems to be very true. Okay. Okay. So back to our patient in terms of management, Anyone getting an ICD is a that's a traumatic event and a distressing event for patients. So, you know, ICD did its job in mm-hmm. you know saving this person's life. But there's an emphasis on reducing the amounts of defibrillations that patients experience. Something one of the things in our threshold in our armamentarium include antiarrhythmic drugs like amiodarone, sotalol, and others. So what would your approach be in selecting an antiarrhythmic or even if you would use an antiarrhythmic for this patient after their first uh, episode of VT with a shock? Yeah, I usually with a shock would end up starting an antiarrhythmic unless we really identified a reversible cause. They were in heart failure um, before the shock um, and we need to get them out of heart failure. They were missing their medicines. Um, They were sick, so uh, COVID. Uh, other uh, viral illnesses, um, UTIs and things can precipitate this. Um, so we'll see this also post-operatively from things like gallbladder surgery or hip replacements because of the adrenaline surges. So if we don't think this is a reversible event, and if the patient doesn't identify a behavior that's a reversal event, such as alcohol ingestion or something like that, then I do think an antiarrhythmic is warranted even after just a first shock. Mm-hmm. Um, many patients are actually um, amnestic to their shocks uh, because of cerebral hypoperfusion, thankfully, um, but most patients aren't. The devices are a little bit of a quick trigger, and these are traumatic events. We're not giving antiarrhythmics just to treat the psychology of a, of a shock, the trauma, if you will, um, but because ongoing shocks Um, uh, run the risk of one of them not being successful. So defibrillators are only so good um, at converting these arrhythmias. And the more you have, the more you're sort of rolling the dice that one of the episodes might not be successful or that it will be electrically successful and the patient will be converted into a paste or sinus rhythm, but have pulseless electrical activity, which we've all seen when we've done codes on the floors and things. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I guess what would be the antiarrhythmic of choice, you know, in this patient, just to review the, I think the salient points, you know, 
younger, 60-year-old man, non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy. Yeah. So antiarrhythmics really are a little bit limited in these folks. So we have a few options. Um, we tend to not use the class 1C drugs, flecainide, propafenone in structural heart disease. So when there's SCAR, um, and certainly in ischemic uh, cardiomyopathy patients, these are no-no drugs. They've been shown to increase um, sudden death events in those patients. So um, we're not going to use those. It, lead, it leaves really the class three agents. So we've got amiodarone, sotalol, or potentially dofetilide, which also has an indication in this setting if the patient's not in active heart failure. So sotalol and dofetilide both require a fairly normal QT interval um, and a corrected QT interval specifically, about 440 or 450 at max. Mm -hmm. This can be a little bit challenging if the patient's QRS is already widened, either because they have an underlying bundle branch block or they're paced. So they're kind of um, back of the napkin corrections for this, and they all kind of do it uh, in a similar way where you're essentially accounting for the excess depolarization time, the excess QRS width, and subtracting it in some form from the QT interval. Mm -hmm. A lot of patients with cardiomyopathy have long QT, and it and it makes these two drugs um, drugs we can't use. Mm -hmm. And so that leaves amiodarone. And amiodarone is our most powerful antiarrhythmic, but that power comes um, at a cost in that 20 to 25% of folks on long-term amiodarone will have a, a significant side effect that will likely lead to its discontinuation. And that includes thyroid uh, disorders, Luckily, that's usually hypothyroidism that we can treat, um, but can be hyperthyroidism, which is especially um, uh, disconcerting in someone with ventricular arrhythmias yeah. and lead to storm and is not a good situation. Liver dysfunction, mm -hmm. thankfully, is very rare, um, as is pulmonary dysfunction, um, but a lot of patients just don't feel well on it. And it's sort of a head-to-toe drug. It can affect a lot of systems. Um, and so it is our drug of last resort, but frankly, I have quite a few patients on it to control the arrhythmias. I think in this patient, I would be hopeful that I could put them on Sotolol. Okay. Okay. So aside from antiarrhythmic drugs, something that you do a lot are ablations for ventricular tachycardia. So I'd be curious, you know, kind of framed around the, the presentation for this type of patient. When do you consider putting this, uh, referring this person for an ablation, performing an ablation? Is this something that you know, after their first event, since he's so young, just to avoid any toxicities from, you know, amiodarone if he's not a candidate for sotalol, just go straight for an ablation and, and try to ablate, you know, these PVCs or the the focus of origin. Or do we maybe make some modifications, see how things go, and if he continues to have more then refer for an ablation. Yeah, I think this is excellent. And you sort of stopped yourself, but I'm going to point out that you started to say, do you put him through an ablation? And I think um, that's been the sort of um, viewpoint of most uh, cardiologists, referring cardiologists, and even electrophysiologists, that the, that the burden, if you will, that the barrier to putting someone, quote unquote, through a VT ablation has to be kind of high. And it's sort of my life's work to lower that barrier for the patients who would benefit. Um, like the prior patient um, is a reasonable patient to go through 
uh, a safe procedure. This doesn't have to be a, a nine hour slog or an unsafe procedure. That being said, this is a 60 year old man with non ischemic cardiomyopathy, and that is a very different animal. So I focused a lot in the ischemic cardiomyopathy case that there's substrate and that we're looking at substrate in relationship to the coronary artery disease and we know where the scarring is. Mm -hmm. So this particular patient, you haven't given us the details, but what do we actually know about his heart disease? And so the heart failure specialists really are moving away from that term non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. We're trying to be more specific because the phenotypes, both from a heart failure standpoint and from an arrhythmia standpoint, they're different based on the underlying etiologies. So I'm often referred this kind of patient after they've had more events on antiarrhythmics. I don't think this is a patient who should go straight to the lab. I think they should be on an antiarrhythmic first and the guidelines would support that for non-ischemic etiology. Mm -hmm. But let's say he had ongoing episodes. I get referred these patients um, by my colleagues to do their ablation. And I may be the first person who's saying, hey, wait a second, have we ruled out sarcoidosis, for instance? Um, have we ruled out really significant valve disease that we're, that we're missing? Um, have we ruled out AR, ARVC in this patient? Um, so it's not really the R in ARVC is going away. This the, uh, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy really can be a biventricular process. And so, uh, you know, have we sent them for genetic testing? And this is um, Lamin cardiomyopathy, which has a very different... Um, prognosis. And I even get to diagnose Chagas disease every now and again, which is kind of a, a fun one. And that has a different trajectory. So I like to step back and say, what is the underlying etiology? But certainly within a non-ischemic population, these are folks that should be on antiarrhythmics before catheter ablation is considered. Um, and probably should have had multiple events, frankly, before they come for catheter ablation. And the reason is it, that ablation is just not as successful in this population as we'd like it to be. Mm -hmm. um, it can be very helpful, um, but there's about a 50% recurrence rate at two years, and it's worse in some substrates. Mm. So. Okay. But it sounds like that the success rate and thereby the threshold for referring to ablation is, is different in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. Definitely. Our, our endpoints and understanding of that substrate and ability to map that substrate, which tends to be sub-endocardial in ischemic disease, um, it's a lot easier to go about those ablations generally. Epicardial substrate, I keep using that word, but I mean scar, and that's really what we're generally targeting with ablation. Um, epicardial scars tend to be, uh, sorry, uh, non-ischemic scars tend to be epicardial. They tend to be in the infralateral wall along the base of the mitral valve, perivalvular, and also in the mid-septum. And the middle of the septum is kind of an annoying place to reach with a catheter because our ablation lesions are only so deep. And the septum's fairly thick in a lot of these patients, um, preserved thickness, if you will, and we often just can't reach it. Um, so I don't want to say that we don't do ablations and non-ischemics. We certainly do. Um, but I think that they should have gone through other treatment pathways and that the treatment pathways aren't as equivalent. There is reasonable data in ischemic cardiomyopathy that ablation is similar to antiarrhythmic therapy. And a lot of people will take that to mean we can just put the patient on drugs. 
Um, other people would take that to mean we can just take this patient for an ablation and have a similar outcome. Um, but that's not true for non-ischemics. So I do want to point that out. Got it. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Let's move to the last case, kind of a, a different case from what we've been describing here. Now we're having a younger woman. She's 38, really no significant past medical history. And she presents to the ER and she's been having palpitations and shortness of breath, you know, for about half a day or so. She's found to have monomorphic ventricular tachycardia with a rate, you know, around 200, give or take. And a 12-lead ECG shows a right ventricular outflow tract morphology, which I, is not totally the purpose of our discussion here today, but so we'll just accept that at face value. She's received some IV metoprolol and the tachycardia is terminated. She gets referred for a coronary CTA, uh, and that demonstrates normal coronaries. Her echocardiogram looks pretty normal, and she goes for a cardiac MRI, and this doesn't show you know, any fatty infiltrate in the right or the left ventricle. So what's your thoughts about how would you approach you know, the risk in this patient in terms of having a fatal event from this person's ventricular tachycardia? No, I think this is a great case and really does give sort of the breadth of the heterogeneity in ventricular arrhythmias. So this is actually not an uncommon situation, um, at least in my practice, I should say. Um, mm -hmm. We do see these patients uh, quite a bit. So the outflow tracts are really interesting. So you've localized this to the right ventricular outflow tract, um, but the left ventricular outflow tract is definitely um, capable of this as well. And the and the prognosis, if you will, and the manifestations aren't felt to be all that different. Um, embryologically, the outflow tracts are sort of the ends of the tube that then twists on itself. Um, and so they, they actually are different muscle. They have different connexin uh, expression and different autonomics. And so this is an area of the heart that, um, that can create these automatic rhythms. So this isn't scar-based VT. These are renegade muscle cells, as I explain them to my uh, patients, that can fire off. It tends to be adrenaline-driven, so it tends to be exercise-induced, can be caffeine-induced, et cetera. And so some people will initially go after this as a lifestyle modification, so whatever they were doing to bring it on, et cetera. I have a problem with that in that when you do monitoring on these patients, they can have them during sleep. You obviously can't modify your adrenaline levels during sleep. Mm -hmm. um, they can have them at other times. And, and I think it puts too much responsibility on the patient to control their own episodes. Um, and I see a lot of patients whose lives have kind of shrunk. They've stopped doing X, Y, and Z um, subtly over the years. And some of them have lost autonomy because they're, um, their family members are nervous about their arrhythmia. And so, mm -hmm. um, so I, have, I think there's a lot to be said about lifestyle modification, but you have to make sure um, that you're not, the trade-offs aren't too high. This patient got the million dollar workup. Um, outflow tract tachycardia is not an ischemic rhythm. And certainly her pretest probability of having obstructive coronary artery disease at 38 years old as a woman was very, very low and wouldn't, it would have been a red herring um, for this VT. Um, and mo modification of coronary artery disease that was found would not have altered this. Um, the MRI is probably reasonable to get because you can have outflow tract tachycardia be the first manifestation of structural heart disease, namely arrhythmogenic RV cardiomyopathy. So I do think that that's a reasonable thing to do. I don't do it in all of my patients 
especially if I'm planning to come to the EP lab, because I can do some mapping during that case to help me decide mm -hmm. if I think that they have structural heart disease. We can look for scar. Um, and if their echo shows a normal RV size and function, the, the um, possibility of ARVC goes way down. Sure. So her first approach can be either a medication. She honestly, if this is her first episode, she can just watch and wait. Mm -hmm. um, or she can try a medication and a beta blocker would be the initial choice or a calcium channel blocker. And a uh, catheter ablation is also reasonable as a first option. An ICD is not indicated here. Okay, so mm -hmm. there's a couple reasons. Number one, the sudden death risk with outflow tract tachycardia is very, very low. There are case reports of sudden death. And they tend to be monomorphic VT that degenerated into polymorphic VT. And they are very, very rare. It seems to be that some of the populations have come out of, uh, publications have come out of Japan. And I, I'm not sure that all of the same uh, phenotype um, as what we're describing here uh, was represented in those uh, publications, mm -hmm. but it is not felt to be a sudden death um, uh, syndrome. That being said, if you have monomorphic VT at 200 beats a minute while you're driving a car, you might not do so well. Um, and so it depends on sort of the context for this individual patient, how you ristratify. But you can't treat these patients with, an, with a defibrillator. And the reason is that a defibrillator is going to see this ventricular tachycardia and it's going to try and stop it either with pacing or a shock. Um, when you get to the shock, what is that going to do? It may terminate the tachycardia, but it's going to cause an incredible adrenaline surge. And that's going to put the patient right back into ventricular tachycardia and the cycle will continue. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's one of the most horrific things to see, even when I'm just looking at the strips without the patient in front of me, to know that this patient was literally tortured by their defibrillator. So we don't put defibrillators in for automatic rhythms, especially ones that are adrenaline sensitive, because they won't stop. It'll just be incessant. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not a failure of the device. The device is doing exactly what you're telling it to do. It's a failure to choose the appropriate therapy within the appropriate context. So I, I honestly can't emphasize that enough. <laughs> Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a, a horrific and very unpleasant event. And it's yeah. difficult to regain the patient's trust after that kind of thing, too. Um, uh, those are those are difficult situations. But these are lovely ablations. Um, I just did one yesterday. Honestly, um, these are accessible areas. Um, we can go after this, and our cure rate for outflow tract tachycardia because you're not dealing with heart failure, not dealing with scar that's changing over time, you're dealing with a renegade muscle cell, our cure rate's about 95% for these. So this is something where we can make it go away. It's not looming over the patient's shoulder and they don't have to take a daily medicine for very, very rare events that aren't due to structural heart disease. Okay. So it sounds like for the outflow tract origin of ventricular tachycardias, that there's really a lot of leeway in terms of management and maybe in part it depends on, you know, the patient's risk tolerance, you know, you've described, you know, you know, driving in the car and then having, you know, a, a VT episode probably wouldn't be pleasant. So maybe persons who are in higher risk occupations, like, you know, pilots or bus drivers or you know, things of this nature, you know, may, may benefit more from aggressive therapy up front to eliminate those episodes. 
but that, you know, maybe other persons, uh, their risks for, and their risk for starting cardiac death is low. Their risk for any event is low. And so one initial strategy could be, uh, you know, watchful waiting. And then another management strategy can be, you know, trying beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, and then escalating, you know, to uh, referring for an ablation later if, if these symptoms continue to persist. Yeah. And I think that the early referral is also fine because introducing the therapy to the patient, even if they decide not to go for it, uh, is fine. A lot of the patients I see weren't aware that there could have been a procedure and they take a medicine for five years. And I think we underestimate that a lot of patients are interested in upfront procedures. I want, I want to lower that barrier a little bit for alpha tachycardia. Um, you know, these patients are often sent for cardiac catheterization if they come into the ER with this kind of um, presentation. And there seems to be no barrier for that, but coming to the electrophysiology lab, which is also a catheterization of sorts, um, is, is not all that different. So it, it, it's sort of how the patient views their healthcare. A lot of patients will do anything they can to avoid a procedure. You will never have a complication of a procedure if you never have a procedure. So <laughs> those patients... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's not the right mentality. And you have to have a particular situation where the doctor would uh, really be pushing for that. So that you're really concerned that, that their life's going to be altered in a negative way. But other people, this is really how they'd like to take care of it. Got it. Okay. Well, those are the cases that I had prepared. Maybe as some final thoughts or wrapping up. Yeah, I could ask you, you know, what are the things that really motivate you and the things that you love about your job and what you do um, in the care and management of patients with you know, ventricular tachycardia, which I think is what a large part of your practice is? Yeah, I, uh, when I was going into training, um, I was looking for something to, to sort of focus on and electrophysiology grabbed me early on. And then within electrophysiology, it was very clear to me um, within cardiology, certainly, that when someone's in ventricular tachycardia, everyone's trying to figure out how to run away. Um, so someone had to run towards those patients. Um, and so I sought out a training program to, to do this. And so I've really built up a, pro, uh, a referral practice and, and a program around ablating VT. So I see lots of um, sort of variants on the theme. I think for me, the biggest thing is making sure that wherever you practice that your patients still have access um, to all the therapies and so it doesn't mean that everyone gets a catheter ablation but that they have access to it so i do still get referrals that are really quite late um, patients who've had a hundred shocks and things like that and and i think some of it is disparities of care, and that's such a part of the discussion now. Um, uh, you know, socioeconomic, racial, gender discrimination in terms of what we offer patients. Um, I definitely see it on the side of these kinds of procedures. And so keeping that in mind um, when we're offering therapies to a patient and making sure that your patients have someone that you can refer for these kinds of things. So an ischemic cardiomyopathy patient shouldn't have to fail six drugs and have 25 shocks and um, have their life kind of uh, really narrowed down before there's a consideration for catheter ablation. The other main kind of, I guess, aspect of my practice, which wasn't something I would, I would have necessarily thought going in, is how much of a heart failure doctor I actually am. So um, 
Dr. Perry knows I am uh, married to a heart failure doctor, Dr. Greg Wood, but uh, so uh, sort of an armchair heart failure doctor. But it is really an important aspect of an electrophysiologist's um, care is to recognize the uh, surroundings that these arrhythmias are happening in. So um, while although it's true that treating ventricular tachycardias can sometimes make the heart failure better if they're the primary cause, it is also true that when patients are having declines in um, their heart failure status and maybe needing to move on to more advanced therapies, um, that they may have more VT. And so you may be the person who says, hey, you, you do need to start to talk to somebody else about advanced heart th failure therapies and what might be um, prognosis, as well as getting palliative care and goals of care really aligned. These are, um, these are uh, uh, serious arrhythmias within the setting of structural heart disease, and these can be difficult conversations. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you, you know, visiting with me and going over these cases. And I think uh, we learned a lot and had a great discussion. Thank you, Andrew. I think this is a great uh, podcast and thanks for doing it. Mm -hmm. All right. We'll see you later. Bye. In this episode, we talked about the indications for ICDs in treating ventricular tachycardia, the role of antiarrhythmic drugs, and when to refer patients for VT ablation. For further reading, please go to apcardiology.com and look for the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This show is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on medpagetoday.com. Much thanks to the band.